Thank you so much for that. Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter number one. I don't know if you've ever been under a waterfall before. I don't know if they have many out here in California. Do they have them out in California here? Okay. Well, where we're at, they have a lot of them. Where we're from, I should say, where we came from. And if you've ever stood under a waterfall after it's just rained, it can be very powerful upon your head. It can be sometimes even overwhelming. And in some sense, it's kind of what we felt like this first week uh, coming here. And, and actually, in regard to not just the, you know, moving to California, but actually the blessings that God has poured out on us from you all. And uh, I really did not expect to feel, not that I didn't expect the love, but I didn't expect to feel the overwhelming love from you all. And throughout this week, every day, there was something else that kind of came our way where it was like another blessing, another way that God's provided for us. And it was just a neat experience to go through this past week and kind of finish the week and say, wow, uh, God, you have taken care of us. And I just want to say thank you to you for loving our family, for loving us, and uh, God has taken care of us. And we're so excited about what God has for us. Thank you for indulging my uh, little quirks like the name tags. And go ahead and keep those on because afterwards people will still want to know your name. Um, we won't do those every week, but we'll definitely uh, do those periodically. And that's a great way for me to remember your name, but also, as, uh, as Roger also said, to remember each other's names. Also, let me say this as well. You can go on the church website, and I think in the bulletin you can see this, just as far as what's going to happen regarding the children's programs. And we'll start those up here in October. We're still working through some of the details with that. We definitely will have um, the children's uh, uh, Thursday night uh, Truth Trackers program, and we'll definitely have something for teens. We're working through some of the details with that. If you have some uh, questions or if you have some ideas, please feel free to come and talk to me about that because that's what we're working on in the month of September here. Really, I do count it a privilege, an honor to be your pastor. And I, uh, like I said last week, I don't deserve it. None of us deserve the grace and goodness of God, right? And I count it a great privilege, but also a great responsibility. And I thought it'd be good before I actually and dove into the, the topic and the passage that we have here today to just go through and help you understand my perspective, what I believe my perspective is and what really God's perspective is as far as what a pastor and a shepherd's duty is and his role is in the church. And I think there's really three basic duties and three basic roles that a pastor fulfills. And there's more than this, but this is, you know, some of the main ones that stand out to me. And number one is that a pastor is to, to lead the sheep, to lead the church which I, I think that means that a pastor is to live his life with the people of the church. It's, it's happening on Sunday, definitely, but throughout the week as well. In fact, let me read this passage for you, and you can look at on the screen up here and see First Peter chapter 5. This is Peter writing, and this chapter 5 here, he writes particularly to elders or pastors. And he says, I exhort the elders. So that's myself, that's, that's Ken and Roger and Norm and Justin in this church. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, so Peter actually lived with Christ, witnessed the suffering and death of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He says, listen, here's your responsibility. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So that's us right here. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. But here's how you're to shepherd 
being examples to the flock. I think I said this one of the times when I came and preached, and that is that a shepherd should smell like the sheep, right? In other words, a shepherd should be, a pastor should be with people. And I hope uh, through this week and the next couple weeks and months here, I can start smelling like you, (laughs) whatever that means. Also, I think a shepherd is to feed the sheep with the word. This might be maybe the main priority of a pastor, main responsibility. And as uh, Pastor uh, Roger this morning read 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's, it's infallible. It's, it's supernatural, the word of God. And it's profitable for every one of us in here. And in verse 17, it says that's profitable to equip us to go forth and do good works. And then in verse 1, he particularly talks to Timothy, a young pastor, probably about my age, actually. And he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. So this is a very serious thing. I take this very seriously. There will be a day when I stand before God and I will answer for how I uh, uh, carried out this responsibility. Who is the judge of the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. He says in verse 2, preach the word. So on Sunday morning, I believe the, the peak of our mountaintop meeting with God is when we come and we open up and see what God's word has for us. And so as we reflect upon this, well, I should say the third one, the third one is to equip the church, to equip and uh, the sheep to lead and to serve and to serve others. But as I just think about expounding the word, preaching the word, I think it'd be good for me to also help you understand how I approach the preaching of the word of God. It's probably not much different than what Roger has taught you in the past, but it'd be good for you to hear this from me. I've had some people ask me, like, how do you preach? What do you, how do you decide what you're going to preach on? And I believe in preaching expositionally, which basically means I'm going to go through, you know, take a book of the Bible and go through the verse of the Bible. And in, in the scripture, the text will help me determine the substance of what I'm going to speak on and also the structure of what I'm going to speak on. David Atkins says expository preaching is text driven preaching, rooted and grounded in the inerrant word of God. So I believe this is God's infallible, inerrant word, right? It's without error, uh, theologically, scientifically, historically, historically, uh, psychologically, whatever ecologies there are out there. Okay, every way, it's, it's actually his perfect word. And so the, the main reason that I preach expositionally is because I believe this is the word of God. And I want the word of God to speak and not myself. I mean, if, if you were to hear me preach on what I thought was important in this world or how my brain thought, we would have some pretty crazy messages, okay? We were watching Anna Green Gables a couple of weeks ago, not the new one on Netflix, okay? The old one that used to be on VHS and now it's on DVD and on DVD it still looks like it's on VHS. And I was thinking as I was watching her, Anna Green Gables, I thought, I kind of think like her. You know? <laughs> Sometimes my brain's kind of out there like that, you know? But so you wouldn't want to hear messages like that. And also, the, the well of my knowledge will dry up at some point if it's just based upon my own brain. But worst of all, there is no life in what I have to say. But the word of God is living and it's active and it's powerful, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So God's word um, is alive. And it gives a life. And, and if I were to preach God's word, or if I should say, if I were to preach without God's word, I'd be like a surgeon without my medical supplies, right? 
It's like you're about to go under anesthesia. You know, the anesthesiologist puts a thing over your head and over your mouth, and you're about to go under, and the surgeon goes, oh, I don't have anything here to do surgery. I guess we're not going to do it today. And you're like, stop. <laughs> I don't want to go under, right? Because a, a surgeon needs his medical supplies. Or if you go into a pharmacist and there's no, there's no uh, medication in there, no drugs in there, it's like, well, why am I coming into the pharmacist, right? In other words, a pastor uses the word of God to preach. And let me encourage you then as the listeners to listen to God's word being preached, not as if you're listening to Ben, but as if you are truly listening to God speak. And don't confuse that. I am not God. Amen. Okay. My wife just had the biggest amen. No, just kidding. I'm not. And you shouldn't confuse that. I'm not in the place of God up here. But actually, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse 13 Paul says something very interesting. He says, when he came to preach to this church, he says, I thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word, so when you listened to Paul, he didn't receive it as if you heard it just from us, our word, as the word of men. So it wasn't like Paul came in and said, well, let me give you the update of what's happening in, in the Roman culture, you know, or let's, let's talk about just some of the the recent facts or news and the or facts and the truth in the news or now he said, like, what does God's word have to say? I mean, think about it. Paul, the apostle, like if anyone could stand up and just start saying things you know, that was just out of his head, Paul, probably he could more than anyone else. But Paul, no, he preached the word. He says, you accepted it as the word of God, not the word of men, but what it really is in truth. And so I'm, I'm, I ask you as a listener to listen to God's word. I mean, imagine if Jesus Christ were to walk in this room and come up here. Now we would all bow down and worship, right? Because he's God. But just imagine if he were to proclaim the word to you, how would you listen to that? I mean, we'd probably be listening pretty intently, wouldn't we? And God though wants us to listen in the same way when his word is preached because truly this is the word of God. So let me say it like this, the degree to which I faithfully expound the word I believe is the degree to which you are to seriously receive it and live the word by faith. So let me say that one more time. To the degree that I faithfully expound the word is the degree to which you are to seriously receive and live the word by faith as if it is from God himself. That's serious, isn't it? That's serious. And that's how seriously I think we should take God's holy word. For this reason, I thought I would introduce what I'm going to preach on the next couple of weeks, maybe months, hopefully not longer than that. And I'm going to actually go through the book of uh, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Let me just tell you three quick reasons why I picked the gospel of Mark before we dive into uh, what I'm going to talk about today. First of all, it's a small book. That's right. Someone said it. It's a small book. It's actually the shortest gospel of the four gospels. You get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the shortest gospel. Actually, it was written to Roman Gentiles, and, uh, and if you think about uh, Mark writing to the Roman Gentiles, it was a, a culture in which they would have been unfamiliar with the religious Jewish culture of Palestine. In other words, they were outsiders to that religious culture. And I was thinking about Simi Valley here, and I thought there's probably people in Simi Valley that kind of feel like that, right? They feel like outsiders to cultural Christianity, and, uh, and so I thought that would probably be a good book for us to preach on, particularly because I think it would be good for you to invite people to come in here to hear the gospel. And you think about the gospel of Mark, it was so short. It was about, if you read it, it's about an hour and a half to read the whole gospel. And you think about the culture back here of, of the Roman culture, most people were illiterate, right? 
So what they would do is take a gospel like this and, and read it to the congregation. And, and sometimes if there are people that were unbelievers in there, they would hear it as well. And so Mark gives a concise uh, view of Christ's life and his work, his death, burial, and his resurrection. So I thought it'd be a good book for us to go through. I thought also it'd be a good book for us to go through because you ever read through an entire book in one sitting? I'm not talking about Philemon and Jude, okay? <laughs> I'm actually talking about like a bigger book like this right here. And so let me encourage you this week to just sit down, carve out about an hour and a half in your day, and just sit down and read through the entire book of Mark. In fact, if you say, well, I have a hard time doing that, maybe what you should do is do what I do sometimes, and that is listen to it while you're reading it, okay? And it kind of helps you keep moving through the book. Another, the last reason here is I chose it because of the theme of Mark. The theme of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God who came to be a sacrificial servant. Jesus is the Son of God who came as a sacrificial servant. So what Mark is trying to do is convince his readers of the gospel of Jesus. What is the gospel of Jesus? That Jesus came down. He was fully God. He is fully God. He came down and became a human. And he did that to sacrifice his life as, an, as a ransom and atonement for our sin. And so Jesus lived a sacrificial life, and then he died a suffering sacrificial death. In fact, look down in Mark chapter 1, in verse number 1. That's actually how he opens up his gospel here. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel, that's the good news. So the purpose of his book is he wants to tell you the good news, right? And that's what we want to tell people in this valley here, the good news, right? And so what's the good news about what? About Jesus Christ. So here he says, Jesus Christ, the son of God, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So Mark establishes what he's going to try to do in this book here. He's going to tell you about the gospel of Jesus, and he's going to show you that Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of God. And he opens up that theme here. And then you, as you read through the book of Mark, you'll actually see that throughout the book of Mark over and over. It's like, he's the son of God. He's the son of God who came to sacrificially serve by giving his life for us. In fact, look down in, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 11. Here, Jesus is at his baptism here. He's being baptized by John the Baptist. God the Father speaks to Jesus, God the Son. And he says in verse 11, and a voice came from heaven and it said, and he said, that is God the Father, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So here Jesus is the perfect divine son. If you go to Mark chapter eight, you can see there that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then he comes to the disciples there and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, Jesus is transfigured before three of the disciples. And God the Father again speaks to God the Son. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The idea is this is, this is the divine son. And he has a special relationship with him. God the Father loves his son. In fact, the demons throughout this book cry out constantly that this is, you are the son of God. In fact, very interesting. Look at the very end of Mark, Mark chapter 15, verse 39. Jesus has suffered on the cross. 
and he has just breathed his last. And there's a man standing down below Jesus who has witnessed his cruel death, Jesus' cruel death, but also his virtuous death. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, this centurion, this Roman centurion, so remember who, to whom was this book written? The Romans, right? And he says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So even a Roman citizen confesses that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So you kind of see the point he's trying to prove here. So he tries to prove he's the son of God, but also what kind of son he was. He wasn't just the son of God. He was the divine son who also came as a human to sacrificially give up his life for us. In fact, look over to Mark chapter 10. Flip back four chapters there, five chapters to Mark 10. And Mark 10 is kind of the the peak of this book. And actually... Uh, Mark chapter 10, everything kind of turns towards Christ's suffering and his death and his resurrection. In Mark chapter 10, here Jesus clearly lays out the plan of the Father. And he says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So that's his purpose for coming. He came as a servant. And what is, this, what is the, his role as a servant? To give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came for this purpose, to suffer as a sacrificial servant. So why did I choose this book? I thought this would be a good theme for us to think about, the gospel, and also to think about sacrificial service. Now, I picked this book about a month ago, and I had no idea what I was going to come into this week. And, and I thought, you know, it'd be good for us as a church to, to focus on serving each other and serving this community. But you know, it's interesting, this week I experienced many people serving us in this church, and I witnessed, in just a small, probably small way, but I witnessed our church serving people in this community. And so God truly is doing a work here of this, but I think it'd be good for us to continue on, to move forward, to figure out how can we serve more? How can we sacrifice more for God's glory and, and for the good of people? How can we advance the kingdom of God? So that was my introduction. So let's start the message. Let's start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this gospel, the gospel of Mark. Even as I read through it, it's just so clear about the son, Jesus Christ, and who he is. So what we want, we don't just want to talk about truth, God. We want that to change our lives. So help us all to listen to your word right now. And God, may we receive it with joy and with faith, and may we go live it by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine a young man in the first century named John Mark. And he's on a ship, maybe he's on the, the bow of the ship, and the ship is leaving Crete, or I'm sorry, Cyprus, and it's going to the mainland. And here John Mark is on the bow of the ship, overlooking the sea there. You can imagine the wind blowing in his face, and his heart is heavy. Maybe even the mainland comes into view, and he sees that. And he's thinking about what just happened. He was on a missionary journey with, with Paul, with Barnabas, and he decided to quit. He decided to go home to Jerusalem, 
where his mommy was, right? And Paul was upset with him. Barnabas was disappointed in him. In fact, when he would go into Jerusalem, it was before they had cell phones, right? They couldn't text each other. So when he would go into Jerusalem and he would see the church of Jerusalem, they would probably be shocked to see him retreat from this missionary journey. And you can imagine what's going on in John Mark's heart. Will God ever use me again? Could God ever restore me? Like, will this define my life? This person I'm describing here this morning is the author of this book, The Gospel According to Mark. And at this time, he's probably in his late 20s, maybe his early 30s. And he has quit the missionary journey that God had called him and Paul and Barnabas too. We can learn about that in Acts chapter 15. The, the story of him being on the boat isn't told to us, but we know he sailed back to the mainland and went back to Jerusalem. And before we kind of go through this book, I thought it'd be good for us to talk about who is this man, John Mark? Who is the author of this book? I think understanding him and his background will actually help us to understand this book that he wrote here. There's really no debate amongst conservative theologians about who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, when, when Mark originally wrote it, the manuscript that he wrote it on, he didn't put his name on there. But after it was copied, they would actually write on there, this was the Gospel according to Mark. And so the first century and second century church attests to this. This was true. Church historians attest that Mark was the one who wrote this Gospel. And so we're certain that Mark is the author of this book. But who was Mark? Well, in the book of Mark here, there's actually potentially two references. His name's not in there, but he refers to himself potentially two times in this book. His name is mentioned the first time in the book of Acts, and then a couple times in Paul's letters and also Peter's letters. He's a very interesting individual. The more I studied him, the more I realized that, that he's actually um, uh, probably a very just regular guy that God used in a great way. As I, as I read through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and then I started reading through his story, what I realized is the theme of Mark is actually very similar to the theme of his life. Because God actually used Mark to be a sacrificial servant. He actually served the church, and he actually sacrificially served Peter and Paul later on in his life. And I'm no way saying that he's on par with Jesus as a sacrificial servant. But the idea is that he wrote a gospel probably when he was in his late 40s or early 50s, and about Jesus being the sacrificial servant, and that's the kind of life that he lived after he was restored to uh, being in the ministry. And so who was John Mark? Well, he wrote this gospel probably in the mid-60s. If you know the first century, what happened during that time in Rome, that Nero was in charge. And this guy was it's a terrible, terrible guy. And uh, he actually liked to build, and he thought himself to be a pretty smart guy in regard to that. So he decided to burn his city down. And when everyone got mad at him, he decided to blame it on the Christians. So the result of that was that there was a persecution that broke out. I mean, it kind of already been happening, but definitely is ramped up under Nero. And actually, the result of that was then Peter and Paul end up being martyred. So turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 5. So we're going to kind of go through a couple passages here and understand who Mark is. So first, we're going to look at Peter and his relationship with Mark. Uh, Peter, the apostle of Christ, was martyred probably around 68 AD. And short before, shortly before his death, he wrote Second Peter, 
And then probably in the mid-60s there, he wrote First uh, Peter. So First Peter chapter number 5 and verse 13 is probably around the time when Mark maybe even wrote his gospel, maybe a little after that. Mark chapter, or First Peter chapter 5 verse 13, Peter writes, she, that is talking about the church, she who is in Babylon. Now you might be saying, oh, I thought this was written, I thought he was in Rome, okay? Well, he actually uses a code name for Rome here. Now we don't know exactly why he did this. Maybe it's because he was trying to conceal where he was actually at preaching the gospel, but he used the code name here. Do you ever use code names? Okay, my kids like code names. When I was growing up, I had a code name for our little club that we had. We called ourselves the FBI. We had little name tags, and FBI stood for Fat Boys of Indiana. So people didn't know who we were, but we had our code name. And so he was probably using a code name here so that people that were reading outside of the church would understand where he was at. But he says he's in Babylon, or he's in Rome, who is likewise chosen. So talking about how the church in Rome is also chosen, just like he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the churches that he's writing to are chosen. And he says they're sending greetings, and notice who also he sends greetings from. He says, and so does Mark, my son. So Peter is preaching the gospel in Rome, and Mark is with him. And he identifies Mark as his son. That likely means that either Peter discipled Mark, or maybe even he even led Mark to the Lord. I mean, he actually knew Mark for years previous to that, probably the last 30 to 40 years, he knew Mark. He probably knew Mark when Mark was a teenager. So at some point, he might even led Mark to Christ, or definitely he uh, discipled Mark and had some kind of discipleship relationship with him. But either way, he had a huge impact upon Mark's life. Now, I want you to think about your own life spiritually, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you have someone that you can think of that is kind of like your spiritual father or, or spiritual mother? I can think back to, um, if I, I was thinking about this thing, and who are the people in my life? Definitely, I would say my father was. My father did devotions with us at night. He would pray with us. He definitely took a spiritual interest in our life. And my dad was a pastor growing up and an administrator of a Christian school. And, and I actually think about many of the things that I do right now can probably be attributed to the fact that my father did those things with me growing up. So the things that I do with my children, I probably can relate back to that. I think of some other men in my life who invested. In fact, I thought about one. I was thinking, you know, this guy really actually made a huge, huge impact in my life. He probably doesn't even know it. When I was in uh, Wisconsin, I was going to a church, and I was just a college student. And I had this guy that was, I think he taught, I think it was uh, second through like third or fourth grade boys and girls for Sunday school. And he invited me to come and help him teach the class. So I thought, great, I'll take notes and, you know, maybe uh, attendance and things like that. And one week he said, hey, you're going to be teaching next week. So I said, oh, wow, really? And so he helped me know how to teach a lesson. And then I taught the next week. And then he would call me throughout the week and see how I was doing spiritually. And, and actually, I looked back at it and I thought, you know, he really made a big impact in my life. And I want you, I want to think, maybe think about this. Are there people in your life who you um, consider spiritual sons or daughters? You know, it's good for us to allow people to invest in us. And I would say if you're a young person in here, it's good for you to think about who, who's someone I can invite into my life to be like, in some sense, a spiritual father or mother. And maybe in our culture, it might seem a little demeaning. It might be like, I'm overseeing you. But the idea is that someone just loves you and is able to pour into you, right? Maybe mentor you. And then who can you pour into? Who can you mentor? And I think it's, it's important to have these kind of relationships like Peter had with Mark. And he was able to either disciple or lead him to Christ, but he was able to influence him for Christ. And, and Mark was able to also have that be a part of his life. And then Mark probably did that with other people as well. 
So it's good for us to have those kind of relationships. So Mark was in some sense a spiritual son of Peter. But also he was, he was Peter's assistant. assistant. So he actually helped Peter in many ways. In fact, he probably would go around with him and, and serve him. Over and over, actually, you see the church father is referring to Mark as, as Peter's assistant or his interpreter and identify him as a helper. Can you imagine being the helper or the assistant to Peter? You know, Peter's like the brash one. He's kind of like the, the ADD disciple, right? And he's kind of like the energizer bunny. I mean, I can imagine like five o'clock in the morning. It's like Peter's like, let's go. You know, and like, if you're like assisting him, it's like, okay, you know, here we go. But he did that. And actually he commissioned Mark to write this gospel. In fact, actually, I'm going to show you a couple quotes up here of, uh, from some church fathers and some uh, uh People who actually refer to Peter as, or Mark as the author of the Gospel of Mark. Justin Martyr was a second century apologist um, who actually had an itinerant ministry in Rome there. And he actually identifies the Gospel of Mark as the memoirs of Peter. So the idea is is that actually the the Gospel of Mark is kind of like the Gospel of Peter written by Mark. In fact, one of the um, manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that was found in, uh, that's from Rome, it was... uh, from the year either 160 or 180, reads that Mark, who is called stump-fingered, now that's not in the Bible, but there's an interesting fact about him. He's stump-fingered because he had rather small fingers in comparison with the stature of the rest of his body, was the interpreter of Mark and wrote down this gospel in various parts of Italy. In fact, Clement of Alexandria, about 100 years, more than 100 years after Mark was on, uh, Mark died and passed away, he says that actually, uh, people encouraged Mark to make sure he wrote down what Peter had said. And so therefore, when we, when we read Mark, we need to remember, actually, this is probably much of what Peter preached. So you can imagine uh, Peter going around Rome and preaching and Mark writing these things down or at least hearing him from Peter and then writing these things down. And that's why we have here the gospel of Mark. Would you turn with me over to Philemon chapter 24? So Mark had a relationship with Peter, but he also had a relationship with Paul. Now we heard about the negative side, when, when Mark was probably in his late 20s or early 30s. But at some point, that relationship was restored, and he was able to actually come alongside and serve uh, Paul again. So Philemon chapter 24, Paul is writing this letter to a man named Philemon, who probably had a house church that the church met in there. And he says, in verse 24, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you some guys that are saying hi to you. In verse 24, he says, Mark... Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So he he identifies Mark there as a fellow worker. Notice some of the other people he identifies there. Demas, remember Demas? So here he's a fellow worker. What happens to him later on? He he, uh, leaves Paul, right? Actually leaves the Lord, walks away because he loved this present world. Then you have there Luke as well. Luke was, was, uh, he wrote the gospel of Luke and also the historical document of Acts. But he also says Mark is his co-laborer. Now, I'm just going to tell you, he writes these guys down, these guys' names down, and says that he wants to, you know, they want to say hi. But also, these are, these are co-laborers with him, right? And these are very important people to Paul. I, I think it's so important to have this type of, these type of relationships surrounding you. In fact, that's one of the things I prayed about when I was saying, God, Lead me to a church. And one of the things I wrote down is said, God, I really want, I want a group of men who can surround me and be like fellow workers. 
co-laborers. And so I'm so thankful for those men who have surrounded Roger over these years and now the men who are partnering with me as elders. I'm also just thankful for the church. Like going to that men's breakfast yesterday and seeing all those men there, it was so, it's like, wow, this is awesome. Like this is happening. Here's all the co-laborers together with us in the church. And, and I know there's other times where people meet like that as well, but that was so encouraging. I'm so thankful for that. But here's Mark, and he worked with Peter, he, or Paul. He helped Paul. And at some point then, their relationship was restored where he was able to come back and serve alongside of Paul. In fact, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 11. This is Paul's last letter that he wrote. So Philemon was, and some of the other epistles that Paul wrote, were, were written when he was in his first imp- uh, imprisonment there. Now in the second imprisonment, this is his last one, right before he's about to be martyred. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, again, he's kind of identifying people who are with him. If you look in verse 10, it says that Demas forsook him. So there's where we learn about that. Verse 11, it says, Luke alone is with me. Then he says, go get Mark. So he's telling Timothy, Timothy, get Mark, bring him with you. Why? Because he's very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that pretty cool to see? Here he had a time in Acts chapter 15 where he, he left, and now he's come back, and now he's actually very useful to Paul. It's very interesting to look at that word ministry. The word ministry there is diakonia. Does that sound like a familiar word? Right? Deacon, that's right. Right? Was, was Mark a deacon? Well, he was a servant. I don't know if he was ever voted in as a deacon in a church, but he definitely served in that way. In fact, it's interesting that he says here, he says, Mark is a useful deacon or a useful servant, useful minister. The word useful is actually also means serviceable or helpful in practical purposes. So the idea is you had Paul who planted churches and presented the gospel and you had Mark who took care of the deaconing needs, if you want to say. He served people. He served Paul, he served the church. And so God restored him and allowed him to be a, a servant, which is very interesting. We'll learn about this next week. I'm not going to go through the whole life of Mark this week. We'll learn about next week that he was kind of a rich kid, grew up, Mark did. He had his own servant, right? Rhoda, remember her in the book of Acts? So I don't know if it's, she was his personal servant, but definitely for the home. And he grew up to become a servant to serve the church and to serve Paul. And think about the theme of Mark. What was the theme of Mark again? It was that Jesus is a sacrificial servant. And what has Mark now become at the end of, not necessarily his life, but the end of when we see him, he's become a useful servant for Christ. And so by God's grace, Mark was changed by Christ to be a sacrificial servant. He's never listed as a pastor. He's never listed as a missionary or an evangelist or anything like that. He's actually just listed a couple times as an assistant or a helper if you want to say a deacon, it's interesting to see just the juxtaposition of, of Paul, and you could put Peter in there too, in Mark. Here's Paul going out, writing books of the Bible that are scripture, right? Planting churches. And think about how necessary it was to have someone like Paul. Think about how necessary it was to have someone like Mark. Think about how, how both those teamed together to help do what God wanted done, which was start churches and see that part of the world evangelized for Christ. I mean, sometimes we can lift up pastors or missionaries and evangelists as superheroes, right? And definitely we should celebrate the work that God does in people's life. Um, First of all, God's only the true hero, right? Anything ever done for his glory is only by his grace. 
But we can sometimes lift up those people. But you know what? You actually need, the other side of that is where you need people who serve those people, right? Both are important. One is not more important than the other. In fact, it's important as we just even think about the role of an elder or an elders, pastors, and the role of deacons. And I don't know every deacon in here yet. I think I've pretty much met you all, but I don't know exactly what, how you serve. But I, I've seen the deacons in this church, and I've seen the elders of this church, and just in the short time I've been here, I've seen them work well together. See, at least it seems like right now. You can maybe tell me afterwards if that's not the case. But I've seen them work well together and then fulfill their roles in a very healthy, wonderful, godly way. But it's, it's just interesting to think about both those roles. It's actually so important that you have biblically um, distinctive roles of the elders and the deacons and that they team up and work together. In fact, let me read for you something I read by a guy named Jamie Dunlop. He kind of writes about deacons and the church and elders. And he says this about deacons. Deacons are shock absorbers. He says the seven men chosen by the church in Jerusalem to care for the widows were chosen to preserve unity. Think about it. He says, as, as the deacons help people serve, you know, take care of the needs of the church, it actually creates unity within the church. So in some sense, deacons are shock absorbers. That's a very important thing, right? Unity in a church like this is so, so important. If people get neglected, that's very difficult for unity. And so deacons kind of bring people together in that way. They are servants, that's what the word deacon means, and they serve the church in that way. They serve by taking care of the practical needs of the church. So in our churches, elders should make directional decisions and, and pray and lead through the ministry of the word. And deacons should facilitate congregational involvement to make that vision a reality. That's what Jamie Dunlop says. And in order for this church, in order for us as Lighthouse to move forward, for the glory of God and by his grace, we have to have a healthy team of elders and a healthy team of deacons serving together. In fact, not just them, but the entire church, right? In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, that's what Peter says. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to it. But 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes, every one of us in the church has received grace or a gift from God. So we all have particularly been graced by God. And why has God given us that grace, so we can serve one another. So it's not just the elders, it's not just the deacons, it's actually every one of us in here should be serving each other for the glory of God. And I think it's interesting just to see that, that the Mark and, and Paul and Mark and how those two work together to fulfill God's mission for them and for the church. You ever heard of Hudson Taylor? How many of you heard of Hudson Taylor? Raise your hand. Okay. So he was a missionary to China. He actually went to inland China when nobody was going to inland China. And there was about 400, this is in the 18, mid-1800s, and there were about 400, uh, I guess 400 million people in China at the time. And he went into China to tell people about Christ. People said he was insane. He was crazy. God used him in an amazing way. In fact, one of his goals, he had a map on his wall, and he would pray through every province in China and ask that God would send missionaries there when people told him, you're insane. In fact, he had a pastor tell him that. <laughs> it's impossible. You're never going to be able to do that, okay? But actually, at the end of his life, he was able to see, after 51 years of ministry, he planted 20 mission stations, and he was able to plant these in every province in China. He brought 849 missionaries to China, and he actually saw uh, somewhere around 125,000 people come to know Christ. In fact, if you were to go to China and to trace the history of a lot of the Chinese believers, you would trace them back 
their historical, you might say, father, spiritual father, was Hudson Taylor. So the, 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 what's happening in China with the explosion of Christianity was God's work through a man named Hudson Taylor. Now, so we go, wow, Hudson Taylor, what an awesome missionary and work that God did in him. Have you ever heard of Benjamin Broomhall? I mean, raise your hand if you ever heard of Benjamin Broomhall. Yeah, no, we haven't, have we? He was actually um, Hudson's brother-in-law. Amelia his, uh, was his wife's name, was uh, Hudson's sister. Actually, Amelia prayed for Hudson to be saved when he was a teenage boy, and Hudson got saved at the age of 15. And from then on out, Amelia kept praying for Hudson, married a guy named Benjamin, and they stayed in England, and they prayed faithfully for Hudson. They would go around to churches and pray for Hudson Taylor and the ministry that he had. He actually became kind of the businessman that oversaw the business of the China Inland Mission, Benjamin did. And he, did, and he actually would publish books that was, were telling, was telling what was going on over there in China. He had 10 children. Five of his children went to be missionaries in China. In other words, what God did through Hudson Taylor, he was able to do in a practical way. He was able to do because there was a Benjamin Broomhall who was serving alongside back in England, but serving alongside of Hudson Taylor. You see, the point is this, is that sometimes you can look at a pastor up here. You can look at Roger for 37 years, and that's great. We should celebrate that. But listen, we are about the body of Christ. We should all be serving. And the work that God is doing isn't just done in a missionary or a pastor. It's actually necessary to have a group of people like a church, like a lighthouse, serve together, to serve each other, to bring glory to God. And Hudson Taylor, the missionary, needed Benjamin Broomhall, the businessman, so that the gospel could be proclaimed in China. And to close, let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. You might be in here today, you might think to yourself, it's great to hear about these great servants of God. It's great to hear about deacons serving and people serving in the church and just how wonderful Lighthouse is. And, but I'm messed up, man. <laughs> like, I messed up. You don't know my past. I can't serve God. You know, I, I've, I've had some struggles as well, and I still have some struggles. You might be thinking that. Well, Paul wrote 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. And he also wrote 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Stay in verse 21, though. But remember what he wrote in verse 11 of chapter 4. He said that Mark was useful for ministry. Interesting, he uses the same word here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. I guess I wonder if when Paul was penning this epistle, if he thought about Mark. I mean, he definitely uses the same word to describe Mark. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... Here's Mark, a guy who was dishonorable. Probably in his late 20s, early 30s. I don't, we don't know exactly what he did. We'll talk about that next week. But he walked away. And he upset Paul. And he actually caused problems for the church. But he was restored. He, he sought cleansing from Christ. He was forgiven. And he says then, in the rest of that verse, he says, he, if he, if he has the cleansing from Christ, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. What's the next word? Useful. There's the word, useful. The same Greek word to describe Mark. He's very useful for ministry, useful to the master's house, ready for every good work. I used to have two vans, and now we only have one. But my van kind of became the van that mugs were lost in. 
okay? Because I would tip my, get my coffee and I would be drinking on the way to the church when I, where I was working at. And so I would, then I would get done with it and I'd put it down and, and it kind of got a collection of mugs sometimes in the seat next to me. Does anyone ever do that in here? Okay. So, no, you're not going to admit that, but I get it. So sometimes that mug would fall down and then roll into the seat. So if I didn't take it in or Dana didn't come out and remind me to take them in, then I would pull out that mug and it would be like mold. It had been there for a couple of months, you know, and there's mold grown out of it. It's disgusting. So much so that sometimes my wife would look at it and say, I'm just going to throw this away. Has anyone ever done that before? Okay. And you do have two choices with a mug like that. You can either be like, so disgusting, I'm going to throw it away. Or you can say, I'm going to give it a deep clean, right? You know, you might be in here today, you might feel like that mug, like on the inside, just, God can't use me. Like, I'm done. I'm good to be thrown away. But God does not agree with you. And like Mark, he can restore you and forgive you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you, again, can be useful for the work that God has for you. And if you're in here today and you've, You've never come to Christ in faith. I invite you today to cry out to him and come to him and trust him. Maybe you're in here today. You say, I've walked away from the Lord. I have some struggles. Listen, you can confess your sin and he's faithful and just to do what? To forgive and to cleanse. That's a promise from God. If you want to talk to someone about that, we would love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're in here today and you say, you know what? I'm in the church. I'm not serving anywhere. I mean, sitting on the sidelines. God wants you to serve. So maybe consider, how can I serve the Lord? Maybe you're in here today and you say, I'm serving a lot of ways. Maybe you should bow your head in repentance. <laughs> and also maybe say, Lord, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you. Anything I do is for your glory and by your grace. Let's pray. As I pray right now, just in your heart, you can pray as well to the Lord of glory. Father, I pray for maybe men or women or or young people in this room who are far from you, who feel like maybe Mark felt like that vessel that was not usable, just felt like, well, I'm just done with. God, I pray the truth of your word will penetrate their heart and, and help them to see you love them You want to restore them and forgive them. May they come to you this morning. And Father, I pray for all of us in here who are believers. And if if we're not serving, help us to know how we can serve or or how we we can serve more. And may we do it, God, for your glory. God, create in this church, in Lighthouse Bible Church, create in us a, a culture of service, sacrificial service, so we can advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.